Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. This series of 20 Not Something is sponsored by Swirls and Curls, your go-to luxury baked goods brand. Any of you who know me well will understand my infatuation with cakes and cookies. But what's even more impressive is when a brand can deliver top quality first-class products which still taste fresh and delicious with a warm home-baked touch. Swirls and Curls is a small business run by the lovely Kirsty, and her beautifully decorated cakes and sugar cookies are the perfect gift for a partner, friend, family member, or for just treating yourself. They are incredible value for money, look fantastic, and taste even better. Head over to Swirls and Curls on Instagram to feast your eyes and stomachs on their wide range of products, and go and spoil yourselves and your loved ones this month with some truly tasty treats. Today I am joined by comedian, writer and podcast host Fern Brady. A shy Catholic schoolgirl turned dry-witted comedy goddess, Fern's 20s journey was complex, colourful and far from straightforward. She started off the decade studying at Edinburgh University, which sparked in her a flair for journalism. Juggling full-time studying, writing for the university newspaper and a prestigious internship, Fern also found time to fund her degree by working at strip clubs around Edinburgh. After her degree, she moved to Sheffield to train as a news reporter, but with only two months to go, unexpectedly quit the course after going to a comedy club to try her hand at stand-up for a piece that she was writing at the time. Discovering a newfound love for stand-up comedy, Fern spent the next few years moving between cities, gigging around and working in a wide range of jobs, from doing stand-up gigs in Manchester while working part-time in a sex shop, to gigging in York where she worked in a halfway house with ex-convicts. Fern hooked her audiences with her quick wit, dry sense of humour and unashamedly blunt perspective on the class system and feminism. At the end of her 20s, she ventured into London, got onto Stuart Lee's TV show and jumped fearlessly onto the stand-up comedy ball as it rapidly started rolling for her. She's been working as a full-time comedian ever since and has recently launched the hilarious Wheel of Misfortune podcast with co-host Alison Spittle. Fern's 20s journey is one of the most eye-opening, unpredictable and truly grounding stories I have ever had the pleasure of reading. Thick-skinned and ready to take on anything it seems, I don't think the comedy scene was at all prepared for this bombshell to drop. And the best part is, she's just getting going. Fern, welcome (sighs) to 20 Not Something. Wow, that sounds like an exciting life. (laughs) It sounds so much better than living it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm excited to get into the the stories from your from your twenties. So, I mean, the the question I ask everyone, which I'll I'll hit you with straight away, is when you were looking into your twenties decade, can you remember what the one thing that you wanted the most was? Um, money. <laughs> I was trying to think of a less vulgar way to say that. I wanted money because I only had um what not to I'm really not having this up. because uh, I constantly say uh now, um always say to my boyfriend, like I can't I can't believe we have this life and that we like have a house and stuff. It's um uh, uh, especially after the pandemic, because um a lot of comedians were badly affected and I feel like I just managed to slide under a, a door that was closing. 
um yeah like in my early 20s I was so skint um that uh I remember there was one time I was really hungry and I was playing piano in this uh bar near my Edinburgh uni accommodation and uh the owner took pity on me and took me out for a curry and then gave me a job I would always just get jobs in odd ways like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) playing the piano in a bar or something or um there was another time um I just never had shoes that didn't have rain coming in them. <laughs> it just, like I always, that's my overriding memory in my early 20s was having shoes with rain coming in them because I only had, <laughs> at any one time I had two pairs of shoes, like smart shoes and daily shoes and they had yeah. holes in them. Um, and then I remember when I started comedy, the staff at the Frog and Bucket in Manchester, which I hate, uh, would make fun of me because I had holes in um, the thighs of my jeans because uh, my legs were fat for me and cheap kebabs and stuff. <laughs> it just was, it was shite and I was always moving house like more than once a year, mm. um, constantly moving house. And now that I've, because I've lived, well, I, I've owned this house and uh, I've lived it here for a year, but I've had... I've just lived in the same area now for years and it makes such a difference. It makes you think, why Why are you supposed to think your 20s are good? I just want the good skin of my 20s and um, the face of my 20s with the money <laughs> of my 30s. <laughs> it's so true. You are so poor for so long. and But also I think when you're in your 20s, like I've got friends who work in you know I'm obviously a freelancer in the arts so my Mm. paycheck is nothing compared to what a lot of my friends are in finance or corporate and I think that's really hard as well because you find you're constantly comparing it and it's not really talked about that much like money yeah that was that's another hard thing in your 20s is looking at what your peers are doing after uni and thinking you took the wrong decision because Mm. the the other main thing I wanted in my 20s was I just wanted to like bust through the the class background I came from and become middle class um because uh, I went to Edinburgh uni um most of my peers uh most of my friends from there are journalists now and I was so close to being a journalist I got this um the Guardian and the Scott Trust, who funds the Guardian, have this um, scholarship, not a scholarship, it's like a bursary so that you can go and mm. train as a journalist because it's really expensive to go and do a journalism postgrad. So I got all my journalism training paid for because I, was, um, cause I wasn't posh and my parents weren't funding it. And um, I remember I had the editor of the NME phoned up and was asking if I wanted to come and write for them. And I had like all these amazing opportunities to be a journalist. And then I did comedy and I just knew that I wanted to do that. And Mm. one of my friends from uni, um, he's like the Guardian sports editor or something. Anyway, he was like, you're an idiot for leaving this journalism course. You're so stupid for leaving it. And I just had this, awful feeling the day I left the course that I was making the wrong decision yeah because you quit two months before didn't you um yeah 
but I mean, I wasn't passing any of that. I couldn't, do, <laughs> I couldn't do shorthand or anything. I wasn't. I was so tired in classes because I was going uh, through to Manchester to do gigs uh, every week. But it's so like courageous to do that because I think especially in our society now quitting is sort of ingrained in us to be this really bad thing you know that if you Mm. commit to something you should see it through to the very end and so for you to quit with such small time left to go um was it was it a difficult decision to sort of just follow what you actually wanted yeah it was really hard because I didn't have um my parents were always just pleased that I'd went to uni but my dad didn't understand why I was doing a postgrad um and really didn't uh like that I was doing comedy because he was like why are you doing all this for free um so it was it was really horrible to feel like I'd given up this graduate career that I'd fought really hard for and that I thought I really wanted to do um but it's always been important to I'm very um, conscious of the fact we're going to die, but I mean, in a positive way. And I think a lot of people just sleepwalk through their life. Um, and I'd, there were older comedians around me who'd come to in their 30s after doing corporate careers that they hated. So I didn't want that to happen. And it's it's still gratifying now. I mean, it wasn't when the pandemic happened. I wish that I didn't work in the arts. But um, it will. <laughs> yeah, but it's good now seeing I've got uh, friends who work in banking and stuff and they hate it. Um, mm. And I wouldn't want to be making a good amount of money for a job that I find uh, dull and meaningless. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um and it's interesting that you chose stand-up comedy in a way because, you know, you said as a kid you were quite shy and mm. I think, like, stand-up comedy is potentially one of the most terrifying jobs you can do, like, literally standing in front of a room full of people and prepared to be judged by them. Um, so where did that come from, like, that sort of interest in, in stand-up? Um, well, I didn't grow up watching stand-up and um, I understand normal... Um, normal like how a lot of people find public speaking terrifying but I find um group social situations quite hard whereas with stand-up you're alone and just getting to talk to people and not having to monitor a lot of different things going on at once so it it feels quite calming for me apart from when you're getting like booed off stage (laughs) does that happen to you yeah (laughs) no way ever heard of a place called horn church (laughs) (laughs) um yeah uh oh my god yeah and it's happened in uh hampton hampton court is like the most infamous one in my mind (laughs) yeah i got like chased out by this pregnant (laughs) woman and two men and but uh, compared to normal social situations, I find it quite common. But I didn't uh, watch stand-up growing up, so I'd weirdly, I've never seen, like, Billy Connolly, which is quite odd if you're Scottish, and um, or any, any stand-up. Um, the first time I saw stand-up was a guy I was going out with took me to see Brendan Burns, uh, an Australian comic, and that was the first time I'd seen stand-up that I thought it was people just doing one-liner jokes and then there was just this guy being really alpha and shouting on stage and I was like I want to do that or also and I saw Jim Jeffries as well and I was like I want 
to do that type of comedy without being a huge misogynist and saying <laughs> like horrific stuff about women. Yeah, yeah. But then there weren't any. I couldn't see any female comics that um, looked like what I wanted to do, and it's so much mm. better now because I I can see. I've said this in loads of things, but it's very exciting to see the legacy that Catherine Ryan and Sarah Pascoe mm. have had. You can kind of tell what new female stand-ups are into them because they're both really different. Do you know what I mean? You can kind of yeah. see it on the circuit. A hundred percent, yeah. And I know that you've said, actually, it was, uh, I think it was an article in the Glasgow Times that you did about um, how sexism was actually really rife and it was worse than mm. in the strip clubs where you worked and you said this great mm. line and you said that the strip clubs were actually more honest mm. <laughs> and I just wanted to get your um maybe do a little compare and contrast of the two you know the experience of working in the strip clubs and then being a female comic because I think that they're two areas which are almost neglected when we talk about feminism and sexism. Yeah it's weird that um people would think of them as two uh disparate or how do you say that word? Disparate? <laughs> Two separate worlds because they're um, both linked because stand-up comedy started in strip clubs. Uh, it's just that it was men doing it. Um, I think Joan Rivers had to perform in strip clubs. It was the entertainment on between the strippers. But anyway, there's, there's a lot of similarities to me in that. Well, what I find interesting is in a strip club, you're there to be ornamental and laugh and smile at the men. That's how you do best. Uh, and in television, on panel shows, you're expected to laugh and smile at the men and be an ornament mm-hmm. in a dress, except we pretend that isn't the case, except it blatantly is if you look at the big fat quiz of the year lineup, or, um, I mean, there's some panel shows that are getting better, but largely... Women on television are still younger and thinner than the men. Even things mm-hmm. like this morning, um, Philip Schofield's about 60 or something and there's always going to be a younger female host. Or uh, mm-hmm. Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid. You can tell that I've been off work for a year. <laughs> this is what I wish. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, Piers Morgan looks like a giant ham and then Susanna Reid has to be... <laughs> incredibly beautiful and she's in her 40s Um, but people just take that in their stride whereas um, Mm. uh, yeah so it's been really interesting to me Um, yeah that that is really interesting and I never would have thought that the two would be comparable in any way but the way you've just said that like it actually does ring true it's um, the, the dishonesty of it. You, you really are expected. I, I've I lost weight for well, not now, but when I started uh, comedy, um, I was fatter than I am now, um, and I didn't care about it. And then I did a comedy competition where I was in the final, and another girl in the competition got signed to a big agency straight away, even though she didn't really tell jokes, but she was really thin and beautiful and I looked at the pictures of us on stage at the at the final and I just was this like fucking lump I looked like a hippo and just something in my mind clicked where it was like 
you're going to have to lose weight to get ahead in this, but no one's ever going to say that to you because people find it unacceptable to say that. But it's the truth. Or I would have to be so fat that it's like my sort of shtick. That's right. That's a big unspoken thing for women in comedy. It's it is getting better now mm. a bit, but not enough that I would that I'll ever feel relaxed about it. And that's mm. depressing that I care more about my weight now than when I was in my pants and bra in a strip club. Yeah. That is yeah, that is so interesting. I remember reading uh, somewhere that you you only told your parents about the fact that you were a stripper sort of years after. Well, my mum then... actually found out because a cunt journalist printed it in a newspaper after I accidentally mentioned it on stage during quite a hard preview. Sometimes in a, really? a, a stand-up preview, you say stuff without meaning to. And I said it, and this journalist printed it and then my mum worked uh on the checkouts in Tesco and she was scanning the newspaper through and she saw it and we didn't speak for um six months gosh yeah how did you handle that uh well it was really I don't like that journalist now (laughs) no yeah like an idiot yeah um uh I I guess People think that because I did that job, that maybe means I come from some sort of like liberal family, but um, it's terrible. We never talk about it now. Um, And I'm doing a, I've been doing a TV pilot about it and I'm actually dreading, maybe it won't get made, but if it does get made, because my mum was like, oh, what's your uh, script about? (laughs) I can't tell her. yeah, so, but I also deliberately, I didn't mention stripping for the first few years, mm. probably the first six years of stand-up, because as a, cause I, I was a trainee journalist, I knew that would be the thing that people pick up on for every interview forever, and mm-hmm. oh my God, I wish I'd waited longer <laughs> to mention <laughs> it. Yeah. Desiree Birch used to be a dominatrix, and I asked her about it. And she was like, it's, it just gets mentioned and everything. Mm, yeah. But it's cool that you're so honest about it now. And just, and I, and I love the, you know, the comparisons that you've made to women in stand up. I think that's, it's really interesting. And as you said, something that isn't spoken about. So, yeah, I rate it. Um, Thanks. When you, so you were obviously moving around. You said you were in Manchester and York and stuff. And some mm. of those jobs were different jobs. Um, they were, they were to, just like conventional. Yeah, they were just really admin jobs. Well, my first job in Manchester was I was doing this gong show at the Frog and Bucket and this guy, uh, this really sweet sort of geeky guy was like, oh, I've got a job going because you just moved here. Do you want to work um, as an assistant in this, like, basically this sex shop in Stockport? And uh, it was selling DVDs and plugs and stuff to people and it was um so just so much fun um but I didn't do that for very long uh because then I got a job doing uh the music clearance at ITV in Manchester oh, right. that fucking sucked man I hated it so much <laughs> like I hated it um really? yeah I was just working with these really like mousy women who were very passive aggressive 
you know the kind of women that say things really sweetly. It's a sort of like middle class English way of being a cow to you. Um, so one of them would be like, "Do do you, do you want a tea? Do you drink much tea in Scotland?" And I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And then I I said to her one day some passing comment about how I didn't have student debt, and she was like, "Well." Yes, that's because you leech off our taxes in Scotland. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> we're in the sun. <laughs> and then another time I was, I said that I liked eating jerk food and I liked um, uh, curried goat. And one of them went, oh, you say that like it's normal. <laughs> it was just like little, little racist comments all the time. Christ. Said in a really sweet way. Anyway, I got sacked from there. Um, uh, where else did I work? Then I started to worry that it was a really stupid decision to throw away a good degree mm. to do comedy because I got a bad review off Steve Bennett from Charlton. <laughs> so I was like, really? maybe I shouldn't do this. So I went to work in York um, for this lefty charity, basically... Um, the, gover- the Tories were cutting everyone's benefits like doing those ridiculous cuts to disability benefits. Mm-hmm. And um, it was something I was pretty interested in. Uh, so I had this job where uh, for a few months I had to go around just telling, crying, severely disabled or like autistic people that their benefits were all going to get cut. <laughs> and wow. um, that was where I met my uh, boyfriend that I'm with now. And uh, from there, I moved on to working in a, a halfway house for people that had got out of prison. And then while I was working there, to cheer myself up, I started writing some bits for The Guardian, um, thinking, oh, maybe I'll get back into journalism. And then from there, I got on Stuart Lee's TV show, which was mad. And then I moved to London. Yeah, it's it's really cool that you bring up the fact that um, you were so unsure because obviously when I read out that introduction, like it is very romanticised in the uh, fact yes, that you know you did this and then you went through and you did, but it is so important to raise that you know you you weren't sure if it was the right thing and no one was going to tell you that it was the right thing, so you just had to to go with it, and that is so hard to do to just keep going. Yeah, it was really really uh, like. Yeah, such a difficult time because there's so many people in comedy that are um, delusional and keep going for years. So you're constantly checking, like, am I delusional? And then you're not very good at comedy for the first few years because you have to get used to the discomfort of being on stage. Um, so there's and and it costs money to do comedy mm. as well. The, that's the other thing is incredibly stand up, which sort of was a quite a working class thing has become one of the most middle class jobs in the UK because um, people get subsidised by their parents for the first few yeah. years I mean people that do the pleasance they must be getting money off their parents to pay for that I know some, maybe the pleasance sometimes covers it but things like paying for a PR at the fringe I only just did that for the first time at the last fringe Um, because it's two grand to have a publicist then it's like I had a giant poster in my face for the first time which I was against but that was about 700 pounds 
So, I mean, when I I did the fringe the first few years, I was only able to do it because my mum lived on the outskirts of Edinburgh. Um, then I stayed with my old flatmate from uni. Uh, so it's definitely something people. I mean, if you have money, you don't have to. You you'd maybe have those doubts, but you wouldn't have to quit. Whereas yeah. I constantly was like, "Am I destroying my um, future here?" Did you think a lot about the future? Like, would you say you're a planner? I'm definitely a worrier. I'm never going to get rid of the worry about having no money. And um, my my boyfriend's always like surprised at this, but I think I've got another mate who used to be really skint before comedy, and she's the same. Where you're like, you're never going to stop worrying about uh, being skint. But that has yeah. led to me doing jobs that I didn't want to do. <laughs> and before the pandemic, I was working flat out for two years um, because I just was so frightened to stop. Like, I was desperate to finish my tour. Not that my, t- my tour was amazing, but because it sold well, my agent was like, do you want to extend it into 2020? And I was like, oh, I really need a break. But then we yeah. extended it. Um, so actually when the pandemic happened it was quite um I, I really needed that enforced break mm. yeah and I think breaks are important as well to sort of just sit with what you've done and maybe reflect and maybe even bask in the success because when you're you know touring and going around the country I I guess it's quite difficult to sit back and be like oh like I'm doing a good job do you think you give yourself time to appreciate the successes that you've had uh well definitely no but um there is also a worry that if you stop uh, because a lot of comedians have these insane work ethics um Mm. so there's always the worry that if you stop someone else is just going to keep dementedly working ahead of you but then my boyfriend's always like yeah but those people have terrible burnouts or he's always Mm. like you value having a rest at home so why do you need to feel like you have to keep up because I was doing Mm. things like like I did um live at the Apollo and the month before that I'd been doing uh Frankie Boyle's tour support and and doing like a lot of different just doing a lot of filming that summer and I was uh really desperate for a rest but I came off stage alive at the Apollo and I immediately had to have a meeting with the guy that I do my script for this uh, BBC guy he's a nice man if he's listening <laughs> but I, I sort of felt like I couldn't say no to a meeting and I just wanted no. to like smoke weed and sort of enjoy <laughs> like enjoy my night yeah. so I came off stage went into a meeting then the next day I took a train to Manchester to do um a gig for 50 pounds and you get paid quite a lot for an Apollo and my agent was like what why are you doing why? that <laughs> but you get told when you're a new stand-up you must take any gig going and don't think you're too good for a gig so I took that really literally um Surely then, the train fare to Manchester would have been. Yeah, I got a train in a hotel, and I made minus money just because <laughs> I because I didn't want them to think I was like too big for my boots. Yeah, <laughs> so it's exposure, though, isn't it? I guess at that stage, <laughs> like it's 
you know, it's exposure and you want to get your name out as far and wide as you can. So yeah. Yeah. Before Um, we move on to talk about, um, to play the game, I just wanted to touch on briefly, um, dating in your twenties because you talk about it a lot in your stand up. Um, uh, your life from the BBC sketch was hilarious. You talk about your ex at, um, uni. (laughs) Um, but how did you find the whole, (laughs) how did you find the whole dating scene in, in your twenties and what was, what was your biggest dating fail? Probably that I had that I was uh, bisexual from a lot of people. Well, from everyone apart from uh, my non-uni friends, because my my best mate from home is uh, gay, and she wasn't at Edinburgh Uni, but she actually was the the biggest bitch to me about it because um, lesbians don't like bisexual. Oh, look, it's maybe changed now. I'm just going off my experience about sure. ten years ago. Um, so yeah, like I was dating this, um, I was dating a few girls at uni and, um, just didn't tell uni friends and just sort of kept, and then there was one girl I went on a date with that was like, also, how did you come out to your parents? And I thought, is this like a standard question I'm going to have to answer? (laughs) And I said, oh, you know, they were really accepting of it and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they were like really cool and I just felt like such a fraud and then there was another um, girl I went out with who had um like unisex name and uh my mum saw her name in my phone and was like oh who's um so-and-so and I was like oh just this guy I'm seeing um oh. so that uh felt really um yeah it just felt really gross and it's weird because I'm always like complaining about uh, celebrities that stay closeted and me and my best mate are obsessed with closeted celebrities and then um, I did material about bisexual um, about bisexuality in my most recent show and it was mad how uncomfortable I was talking about it on stage because really? yeah because in my head I was okay with it because I'd been seeing all these girls on the sly. Oh, then there was another time this lovely girl in Manchester, she came to my tour show actually recently with her fucking fiance. Anyway, she <laughs> um she was like trying to hold hands with me on the tram and I was like, go away, go away. <laughs> so that was the that was one of the worst bits. Yeah, um no, I do have regrets for being mean to people because you think about like the legacy that has and you're just reinforcing all these negative stereotypes about the the bisexuals um regrets yeah but you learn from them right that's yeah i don't have now i've heard people in their early 20s or younger people now don't have sex because they're all on the internet or something i don't regret any of that and i think people should do that before they have a mortgage with someone (laughs) (laughs) top tips i love that (laughs) (laughs) so we're going to go on to play millennial minesweeper now so this is just a um a little quotes game we play at the end where i read Mm -hmm. out some quotes about living life in your 20s and you've just got to say whether you agree with them or not and we have a little chat about them so our first one is for some reason, we've assigned 30 as the age in which we must have our dream job. And if we don't, we feel as if we somehow failed along the way. Yeah, uh, I think people 
do think that, but you have to bear in mind that by the time you're um, 40 or 50 or 60, the idea of 30 being old is going to look preposterous to you. Um, yeah. And you also have to think of things as you're you're lucky to even, um, you're lucky to even have lived that long. I try and mm. think that way. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's so important as well. And it's so hard when you're in your 20s to think about being in your 50s in terms of, of that way of looking at it. Like one day you're going to think back to when you were 30 and think how young you were. Mm. Um, and it, it really frustrates me that there's this whole atmosphere around 30, which is just so negative. Yeah, I remember being worried about my 30s because a lot of people I knew were turning 30 and going daft about it um having sort of crises and stuff and it's now it just seems so dumb yeah yeah for sure I agree okay cool our next quote is dating in your 20s is like being given free range with the finger paints as a toddler I disagree how come or do you mean because um People are so clumsy in their 20s. And, <laughs> but, um, and that's what I got from it. Because I think it meant, like, you have free range of, like, you, you know, you can do loads of stuff, you like toddlers with finger paints. But I was thinking about it and I was like, have you ever seen a toddler with finger paints? Like, it's a fucking mess. And they miss a lot of the time. So maybe that's what the allegory actually meant. <laughs> I think, I don't know, everyone around me when I was in my 20s, it seemed more like people weren't allowing themselves to have a nice time with dating and I, I mean it could be the university I went to people would date the same person all the way through uni and then marry them and they're still mm. married to them or they all married these people after uni so it was very um uh almost Christian in the way it was mm. and, and then yeah. my friends my non-uni friends also had a lot of sort of trials where it's like they only let themselves uh, they only learn to have good relationships in their 30s or to enjoy themselves in their 30s it seems mm. yeah it's it's uh it's a weird one isn't it because the general perception i think of your 20s is that you know you can date whoever it's easier now to date than it it was 20 years ago with dating apps and, and stuff like that but I actually agree with you in the sense that a lot of my friends at least have met someone at uni and then will go like it's looking promising for that future with just that one person so yeah I I've never used can... a dating app by the way have you not no because I've been with the same person nearly nine years so it's like uh um, both of us have missed dating apps. That I used a thing called Guardian Soulmates, and um, and then years before there was a thing called Hot or Not that I think was invented by the Facebook guy, actually. Um, yes, yeah, that was before Facebook, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's like a yeah. proto Tinder. Um, it sounds like, but mm. I never enjoyed. Um, I never enjoyed internet dating because I don't. I don't really fancy people just from their faces. Um, mm -hmm. Like whenever I would meet people from internet dates, they always look the same as their picture, but um, I don't know. I don't really understand what it is I like about people, but it's not from a dating profile. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I hear that. Um, so our final one, this is by Elizabeth Day. Um, mm -hmm. 
The more I speak to people about the wilderness of their 20s, the more I realise that perhaps the greatest achievement of this particular decade is living through it. Definitely. Your 20s is where you build resilience. And I, I'm really grateful now to my parents that they didn't give me any money or support me in any way, because if they had, I don't know, I've got friends that were sort of trust funded all the way through their 20s and had such a nice buffer from their parents. But um, yeah, if my parents had done that, I wouldn't have had all these different experiences and wouldn't have been able to write about them yeah it's so nice to have been able to gain that retrospectively as well I guess because at the time I'm sure it was really hard you know being skint and and not feeling you know feeling scared for the future but it must be really rewarding now looking back and thinking oh no that was worth it yeah I I, definitely I think I'd say if you're in your 20s don't have a I always had this panicky feeling that like I had to achieve I definitely felt like I had to achieve certain things by 30 or felt like I was constantly trying to keep up with stuff. And um, mm. But it is definitely better being in your 30s. I remember reading interviews with female celebrities growing up that, where they were like, being in your 30s is so great. It's so great to be a confident older woman. And I was like, oh, they're just saying that because they're better and old um but I, I do see what they're on about now yeah. you sort of give less of a shit as you get older yeah about that's good that's good to know I feel reassured by that I can't wait to stop giving a shit about things more than I do now <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you so much fun this has been thank such you, a fun Emma. chat it's such a good idea for a podcast I think oh thanks yeah I just want to give a little bit of reassurance to the world that it, it is all right it does it does get better <laughs> thanks so much again fern for coming on the 20 not something podcast if you guys at home enjoyed this chat then do go and check out fern's podcast called wheel of misfortune where she and co-host alison spittle discuss a number of embarrassing and funny stories um and they're also joined by some really great guests as well so definitely go and check it out also a big shout out to the composer and producer of this podcast pete half and a big thank you to you guys at home for listening i hope you're all enjoying the season so far and we will be back next wednesday with another episode so stay tuned <laughs> <laughs>